This week I was just trying to think, that's always a dangerous thing to try to think. Uh, I was just trying to think uh, about what the catchphrase of Victor Meldry was in, uh, in the sitcom uh, One Foot in the Grave. Here is Victor Meldry. Hands up if you remember this sitcom, One Foot in the Grave. Victor Meldry. I was sitting in the office the other day trying to think what was his catchphrase. Was it, I can't believe it. Or was it, I don't believe it. Let's have a little vote. Who thinks it was, I can't believe it. And who thinks it was, I don't believe it. See, you're all sharper than I was. I I thought it might have been, I can't believe it. But it was indeed, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it! I don't believe it! I don't believe it! I do not believe it! I do not believe it! Victor Meldry said, I don't believe it, you're quite right. There's a dictionary called the Urban Dictionary, which is like a dictionary of slang, or streetwise chit-chat, apparently. And uh, this is what it says. The expression, I don't believe it, means an expression of utter disbelief at a truly unfathomable circumstance. I just don't believe it. It said on the article, on discovering that a lamppost had crashed through his bedroom window, Victor Maldrew exclaimed, I don't believe it. I think I would say that if a lamppost came through my bedroom window. This phrase, though, is quite interesting because you could, you could say this phrase in two different ways. And the first way is the way Victor Maldrew says it, and really, he's just a grumpy old man, isn't he? I just don't believe it. It's, he's frustrated. Every, the whole world seems against him. Disappointment. And you could say this phrase, I don't believe it, because you're just utterly depressed and not surprised at how badly things turn out. I just don't believe it. I, I had a little sense of this uh, last weekend. Uh, this week has been our 20th wedding anniversary. I know I don't look old enough, uh, but uh, it has been. I was married in 1991, September 28th, and last weekend we went away for a little holiday, just me and Jane for the weekend to Bakewell. I was very pleased with myself, I booked it all myself on the internet, a little bed and breakfast place uh, near Bakewell, and when we got there it turned out to be some sort of Buddhist vegetarian retreat. And you would have found me last week wandering around Bakewell, shaking my head, saying to Jane, I just don't believe it. How can I make such a schoolboy error? I don't know anyone who is less of a vegetarian than I am. How could I not see that on the website? A vegetarian Buddhist retreat. There I was. How inappropriate. It's a good job there was a pub across the road that served steak and ale pie. That's all I can say. 
I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. But there's another way to say this phrase. And that is, if we think about the idea of gladness rather than grumpiness. Let me just put this twist on it. This isn't Victor Meldry. Another way this phrase can be explained is when someone feels so overwhelmed, surprised, pleased that something good has happened to them and they're just sitting there scratching their head going, I just, I just don't believe it. That isn't Victor Meldry. That's a completely different use of the same phrase, isn't it? Earlier this year, we had a few people around at our house on a particular day, the very last day of the football season. William and Emma got an exp- uh, a sense of this. I think Emma particularly. The very last game of the season, my team, Wigan Athletic, had to win to stay up and not be relegated. And I think I- I've never seen such terror in Emma's eyes as we saw Wigan score the goal that kept them up. And our, our whole family were jumping up and down, knocking chandeliers or, or, or ceiling lamps. We, and, and we were saying to each other, we just don't believe it, we're staying up. And the, and the happiness and the joy and the gladness. I was thinking of other, other useless words. Maybe, I know they're fairy tales, but you think of, um, I don't know, some character in a fairy tale like the character Cinderella. Can you imagine Cinderella in the palace? A poor, mistreated girl. And she gets welcome to the palace. Her knight in shining armour comes. And she's in the palace. Shaking her head, sat on the end of a bed in her posh room. Going, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. This time last year I was scrubbing pots with the ugly sisters. And telling me what to do. And here, I just can't believe it. I think just as we can be shocked by disappointment, sometimes we can be surprised by joy. And... uh, I think if there was a title for my little talk to you this morning, it would be this. I don't believe it. It's too good to be true. Well, keep those thoughts in mind. Grumpiness or gladness. And I want to just turn our attention to the little part of the Bible that's on that little piece of paper that you've got. Just to help you. There's different people here. Let's assume that we don't know anything about this. It says at the top of the page, 1 Timothy there. That's because this part of the Bible is a letter that a man called Paul wrote to a man called Timothy. And the reason it says 1 Timothy is because he wrote 2. And this, very helpfully, is the first one. And that's why it's called 1 Timothy. There's another one after that. And guess what that's called? 2 Timothy. Because there's two of them. The first one's called 1 Timothy and uh, just to show you where they were, Paul, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Do you recognise that? It's the Mediterranean Sea, Cyprus and Crete in the middle. This is Israel down the bottom uh, on, the, on the right. And this is modern day Turkey. Paul was up north, up in Greece somewhere. And he's writing to Timothy, who's near the coast, in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. You can still go there and see some of the ruins. And Paul's writing to Timothy this letter, the first one, 1 Timothy, because Timothy, Paul's an old man, Timothy's a younger man, like me. And um, Paul's writing to Timothy, 
because he's leading a church in Ephesus that has got problems in it. And uh, this little extract that we've got of this letter, if we're going to understand it, I just want to explain a little bit about what's going on. The problems in the church were quite big and complicated. But for our purposes this morning, the root of it was that the church in Ephesus was filled with religious people. That might seem a bit strange. Is that not what most churches are filled with, religious people? Well, let me just kind of put a twist on that. This church in Ephesus was filled with people who would say this. You get right with God by keeping the rules. So let me just let that settle for a minute. The way that you get right with God is by keeping his commandments or rules. The issue with the people in Ephesus though was they said something else as well. Let me just add another phrase. This is the problem in the church in Ephesus. You get right with God by keeping the rules just like us. There were people in the church who thought that they were right and that everybody else was the riffraff. And they were teaching them, if you want to get right with God, you need to be like us. Keep the rules just like we do. Does that sound like a familiar concept? I don't know. The church was full of religious people who said that. It wasn't that they didn't believe in God or that they didn't believe in Jesus. The problem was that they just thought that Jesus was a great teacher who would come to teach them how to be good and that they were doing it and everyone else should be like them that is why what Paul says here is so important just look with me at that piece of paper halfway down there's a little number 15 Paul Paul didn't write the numbers someone added them after but just help us there's a little number 15 there verse 15 Paul says to Timothy to help him to deal with the problem in Ephesus Timothy here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you know what Timothy I'm the worst and he saved me. In a minute, I want to look at that little verse, so hold that thought as well. I just want to get back to Victor Maldu and our phrase, I don't believe it, because I think you could. You could take that piece of paper and you could write across it in big words the title, I don't believe it. Not because he's miserable like Victor Maldu, but because he's absolutely astonished and surprised at what God has done in his heart and life Timothy, I just can't believe what God has done in my life when you read these words so, do you ever get this, when you, when you read words in black and white on a piece of paper and, and it just sounds boring and you, you could sit there and read this I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointed me to his service 
even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in unbelief and ignorance. That's not how Paul's writing this. It's hard, isn't it, to get the energy from when it's written down on a page. Timothy, I don't want you to miss this. And when you're dealing with these problems in Ephesus, never ever forget that God has given us something to say. He's entrusted the gospel to me. And I thank God, I thank Christ Jesus, who has considered me faithful. He's given me strength inside. He's not just told me what to do, but he's actually helping me how to do it. And when I think what I was, and when I think how God has poured out his kindness on me, I didn't deserve any of it, not the least of it. I just don't believe it. I just can't believe it, Timothy. In verse 14, Paul even makes up a word. The word that's translated abundantly in verse 14 isn't found in very many places. And it's almost like he's using a bit of slang and saying, the grace of our Lord was poured on me more than a lot. (laughs) It's like he's making up a Greek word that didn't exist before because he's so utterly excited about what God has done for him through Jesus. It is like Paul staggering about under the weight. When, when we were kids, we used to watch a programme called Cracker Jack. It's Friday, it's 5 to 5, it's Cracker Jack. Some of the older ones will recognise that, the younger ones will go to sleep. But in Cracker Jack, they used to have games where school children would come on and they would load them with prizes. And you could, you could, I can see them now with their school uniforms on, trying to hold these kind of computer games and footballs. And, and every now and again, they would lob a cabbage on there to try and make them drop all the stuff. This is how Paul is. I just don't believe how God has lavished his kindness on me. Let me just work through his amazement with you. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service. Paul says, Jesus had a job for me to do. He's appointed me to his service. He's my master and I'm now working for him. But not only that, Paul says, this same Jesus has given me strength inside. He has put strength and steel and willingness into my heart so that I can serve him. When it says he considered me faithful, I I was kind of thinking about that during the week. I want to put it this way. Don't misunderstand it when when I say this. I think what Paul's saying is, I don't believe it. Do you know what? Jesus actually believed in me. I was watching the X Factor last night. I don't I'm not really a big X Factor fan I was just sat in our bed and I put the TV on and X Factor was on and some one of these aspiring wannabe pop stars was there crying their eyes out and uh, it would just change my life if someone would just 
believe in me. I so want to be a singer. If someone just believe in me. This is not the X Factor, but what, what Paul's saying is, Jesus saw something in me. He didn't see me just as I was, but he saw what I could be. And he lavished his kindness on me to bring that about. Isn't that beautiful? He considered me faithful. He believed that with his help I could do it. Not in my own strength, but in his strength. He didn't just condemn me. He didn't just see a blind, slightly ignorant man. But he saw potential. And so he handpicked me and appointed me to his service and then gave me the strength to do it. Timothy, I just don't believe it. It's almost too good to be true. Some of you might know Paul's story. We heard Tim's story earlier on. Paul's story is the story where we get the phrase a Damascus Road experience. His encounter with Jesus was very dramatic. He was a religious man. He was very proud of his high level of morality. He thought he was right with God. And then he heard of Jesus. And do you know what Paul thought of Jesus? What a tramp. What an absolute tramp. How on earth could a stupid, poor, peasant man from Nazareth be the Messiah and what's worse common people they, they flock to him and seem to love him more than that when he died they then started claiming that he'd risen from the dead, what a bunch of no marks <laughs> and he gave his life to stamping out Christianity. That's who Paul was. A religious man who hated Jesus and Jesus' followers. He says it himself here, doesn't he? I was a blasphemer. That is, I hated Jesus. I was a persecutor. That is, I hated his followers. Do these people not know how religion is supposed to work? If you keep the rules, you'll be right with God. They run off and worship this peasant they've no idea do you know Paul he had Christians thrown into prison he even had Christians executed by stoning and he says here I was a violent man that is insolent belligerent he says more than that here he says I acted in ignorance and unbelief Paul says I was as blind as a bat. I couldn't even see past the end of my own nose, let alone see Jesus. I was a horrible, violent man. I could not have been more wrong if I'd been trying to be wrong, and yet I thought I was right. Do you know what happened? He was going to Damascus to persecute even more Christians. He got a letter to give him permission to throw Christians into prison and Jesus met him on the road and Jesus said to Paul Paul why what a great word that is why why 
are you persecuting me? And the subplot to that is, do you not know, Paul, that I love you? Do you not know, Paul, that I've got work for you, yes, even you, to do? Stop fighting and come home. And Paul's converted. He moves from death to life. From anger and hatred to peace and love and joy. He moves from being full of violence to being full of Jesus. And he's just amazed. Timothy, I just can't, I don't believe it. It's like God has opened a trapdoor in heaven and all of his goodness has fallen out on top of my head. And I was a persecutor. I hated him. And you know, instead of smashing my lights out like he should have done, he's just given me everything. I don't believe it. He's no Victor Meldrew, is he? <laughs> he's absolutely thrilled. Of all the people Jesus could have picked, he picks Paul. Do you know what the backstory of this is? The backstory of this is, Timothy, you've got a church full of religious people who are saying, we get right with God by keeping the rules. Everyone needs to be like us. What you need to tell them, mate, is that it's all about Jesus, not about rules. And I'm a living proof of that, given what Jesus has done in my heart and life. That's the point of this section. And so we come to Paul's statement in verse 15. Let me just rattle through this. This is... If, some, if someone said to you, what is Christianity? You could do worse than use this very verse. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is, this is believable, correct, reliable and true. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Are we still on? Can you flick it on for us? Let me have a little think about this phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh, we talked about Paul's story, we passed all that. Let's go to the next one. There we go. No, that's it, going to the doctors. This year, some of you know that I've been having a few problems with my blood pressure. It's not massively high, but I've, I had to go to the doctors. They did all these tests. They were... This woman stuck things on me and I thought she was going to give me electric shock. It's called an ECG. And I was, br- I, was re- I was bracing myself thinking it was going to shock me. And they said, that's it, it's done. And this printout came out and it said my heart was fine. My, I think Jane thought my results had been mixed up with someone else's. But I've been taking some tablets for blood pressure. Just imagine with me that you could, you could like encompass the whole world. Let's call the world Mr. World. And let's say that Mr. World, as a whole, was going to the doctors for some tests. And the doctor is God. So here's Mr. World going to the doctors. He, he, he knocks on the door and, and God says, come in, Mr. World. 
I'd like to do some tests. Let me ask you the question, what is wrong with the world? Well, Paul says that God's diagnosis is if God could take the world into his surgery and stick little things on and do tests and get a little print out, do you know what the answer would be? It wouldn't be poor education. It wouldn't be bad upbringing or uh, you could talk about millions of things. Do you know what the real... Someone very wittily said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The issue is that the world is in rebellion against the God who made it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Can you just bear with me a little minute here? Because I don't, I don't like talking about this. But I have to, because it's my job. <laughs> and I don't think you can get a sense of Paul's thrill until you understand this. So will you bear with me? Because I don't really like talking about sin, because it's miserable. But I have, to, I have to say this. Just imagine you're in the doctor's surgery and God's doing tests on you. There's a few different ways the Bible talks about sin. Can we do the next one, Rich? One word for sin is the word transgression. The word transgression means if there was a line there and you stepped over it, that would be crossing the line. And the truth is that God has given us lines Commandment, the Ten Commandments is one good example and you know what we do in our lives we consistently step over that line it makes us guilty it's horrible that's one way of thinking about sin next one is being off court there's another word in the Bible that describes sin and it's the word iniquity and I love this illustration I, I have played a little bit of crown green bowls and when you play crown green bowls when you bowl the ball, it never goes in a straight line because it's got a weight in one side. So the skill in the game is that when you bowl the ball, you have to send it over there somewhere and then the weight in the ball makes it curve round to where the jack is. That is a great example of what the word iniquity means. Our human nature is always veering off course. We don't veer towards God. We veer towards selfishness, and all of that stuff, we, that, that's another way to describe sin. Not just cross the line, but we can't help it. And a third thing, I believe Richard is uh, good at archery. I, I never knew this until someone told it to me, and then I did. That an arrow that misses the target, do you know what archers call an arrow that misses the target? They call it a sinner. That's amazing, that, isn't it? Nothing to do with church or religion. But that's another idea of the word sin. That, and it's like your life, my life, is aiming at the bullseye and it always falls short. We can't even keep our own rules, can we, let alone God's? <laughs> we cross the line, we veer off course, we fall short. That's sin. We're right in the middle of two political conferences at the moment. They've had the Labour one, the Conservative ones to come. I've never ever heard a politician diagnose human problems in those terms. I've never heard a teacher 
This world would say the answer to problems in the world is for people to assert themselves, make choices, be free, be independent. That isn't God's diagnosis. God's diagnosis is there's something wrong with us. We're sinners. If God was Victor Meldry, which I thank God he isn't, he would be well within his rights to say, I just don't believe it. These people are an ungrateful, sinful, selfish, violent, corrupt lot. I just don't believe it. But he isn't. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Did you hear what I said? Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn people, but to save them. That word saves a strong word. I'm thinking of a fireman going into a burning building and dragging people out. I'm thinking of a lifeguard who speeds in his lifeboat to some people who are drowning and puts them in his boat and brings them back safe. Um, did you hear the story about Prince William in the news this week, how he did a 24-hour shift? In his helicopter, he went to rescue people who were walking in the Lake District to become stranded. Jesus came into the world to save sinful people. And just look at what Paul says. If this is true, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you know what, Timothy? And I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I thought I was right and I was wrong. But for that very reason, God has shown me mercy so that in me, the very worst of sinners, God might display his patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. It's like Paul is saying to Timothy, if, if Jesus can save me, he can save anyone. And he can. Paul is saying, Timothy, I can hardly believe it. I don't deserve it. I was a wretched man. And God has poured out his kindness on me, sending Jesus to die so that I could be forgiven. I just want to say three very quick things and then we're done. Okay? You still with me? I hope so. First of all, I just want to say this. Christianity is not what people think it is. It's not, you can't get to God by keeping rules. Paul tried it. It just made him think he was better than other people. Someone has said that religion is all about doing, doing, doing. With Jesus, it is all done. 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 He's done it. He is the one who opens the door. He's the one who makes it possible. If you are looking into your own heart and thinking that you are good enough for God, you've completely missed the fact that Jesus came down from heaven into the world to save sinners. It's his work. Christianity is not really religion in that sense. Secondly, very quickly, I want to say, 
Christianity changes people's lives in a way that religion can't. I have to be honest about this. Sometimes people think that if Jesus forgives people, then it will just increase their sinfulness. But do you see any evidence of that in Paul? They'll realise that they can do what they want and Jesus will forgive them anyway. It doesn't work like that. It wasn't like that for Paul. Here's Paul, amazed, thrilled. I just can't believe it that God has been so gracious to me. We sang before, didn't we? Amazing grace. We sang, what was the the, the song, um, King of Kings? In, In royal robes, I don't deserve. I live to save my majesty. This is Paul's whole life. You can't make someone good by forcing them to obey rules but you can make someone good by changing their heart through love last week when we were away we went to the pub across the road for some steak and ale pie and I strolled into the pub and she said would you like some drinks and some food and I said yeah do you take cards and she said no we take checks or cash but she said Get this, never met this woman in my life before. If you haven't got a cheque or cash, don't worry. You can take our address and when you're finished, we'll give you the bill and you can send us a cheque on. Have you ever been in a pub like that? And do you know what it made me think? I don't think there's a single person I know who would not send that cheque. Why? Because of the trustfulness of the woman. You, you, you'd feel horrible abusing that, wouldn't you? I, I, couldn't, I nearly fell over when she said that. But is that not what the gospel's like? Jesus comes and lavishes his kindness and you can't but say, Jesus, I love you. I want to follow you and serve you. And maybe if that's not you, you've not yet understood it and you're still living a religious life. The last thing I want to say is this. It's a question for you because this is a challenge, isn't it? My question for you, all of you, is do you believe in Jesus? Not whether you're keeping the rules. That'll come because of the love of Jesus. But do you believe in him? Do you know, there is another way to say what Victor Maldry said. I don't believe it. It's not grumpy or glad. It's just deliberate refusal to believe what is staring you in the face. I just won't believe it. There's the example in the Bible of Thomas who Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to some disciples. Thomas wasn't there. And all the other disciples said, we just don't believe it, Thomas. Jesus has risen from the dead. We've seen him. And he said, I'm not having that. Unless I see him and put my fingers in the holes where the nails were, I don't believe it. Jesus very graciously appeared to Thomas as well. And he fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God, I believe it now. Someone might say, I will believe, but not yet. That means, I won't believe. Someone might say, I'm enjoying looking, but I'm not ready to buy. What's that all about? That means, I don't believe. Someone might say, I'm too bad. You're not as bad as Paul, and Jesus saved him. He said he was the worst. So you can't be lower than that. The other thing sometimes people say is, I'm too good. I don't need a saviour. I'm alright as I am. Thank you very much. 
someone might say, I've had a better offer. If you know a better offer than this, come and see me afterwards and I'll give up being a minister and follow you. There is no better offer than this one. Someone might say, I'm going to sort myself out first and then I'll come. When does Jesus say that? Someone might say, I'm just too busy with other stuff. How can you be too busy for this? The whole idea here is of coming to Jesus to stop looking at yourself and to put all your fears, doubts, sins, regrets, hopes and dreams in a great big fat wheelbarrow and bring them all to Jesus. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Don't be a victim, Aldry, and say, I don't believe it, in a grumpy way. Don't be like Thomas and say, I don't believe it, in a cynical way. Be like Paul and say, I don't believe it, in a way that really means you do believe it. <laughs> You're amazed at what Jesus has done for you. Can I urge you to come to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, including you. So we're going to sing. Is that correct? Excellent. Thank you. You've been very patient. Because I do tend to ramble on. We're going to sing um, forever. Give thanks.